A reading from the book of Ezekiel. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long, from abundant water in its shoots. All of the birds of heaven made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the fields gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was, e- was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and his heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken in all of the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this in order that no tree by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no tree that drink water may reach up to them in height." For they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of man, with those whom go down to the pit. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was just thinking how great it is to walk into the middle of all of you and bring the word of the Lord, and I really did. (laughs) Anyway, it's the word of the Lord um, according to Mark. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. The earth produced by itself, first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God or What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. But privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
So you may be seated, preschoolers, you can start heading out that way. As I was getting ready for church this morning, I was, I was thinking to myself, all right, in second service, I'm going to go with my son Ellis out to preschool class. And then I thought, wait, I'm preaching. That might be complicated to work out. I haven't figured out how I'm going to do it yet, so we'll wait for second service and see what happens, I guess. So I did have a, a mix-up in the readings this week. I changed things as, uh, as the week went on, so I want to read our Second Corinthians reading again to make sure I hit everything for us. Um, so if you're in your bulletin, we'll read this. This is good to read again. I've read this a lot this week. It's kind of confusing no matter how much you read it, so let's go for it. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. That's the word of the Lord. So our youth group has, has gone on two mission trips to Merida, Mexico. Uh, it was YWAM Minneapolis uh, would bring groups down to work with three local churches there. They were actually uh, churches that um, one of our former members, David Clark, helped to start. Um, so we would just tell them we were coming. They would work with us on what they were hoping we could help them with in some way. And, and then when we'd go, and, and honestly, when we get there, you always see they don't need our help in any real sense. They're glad to have it. Um, we join them in works that they're already doing. We can speed some things up. And it's always, there's a nice novelty of having youth out with the kids, um, the, you know, Minnesotan youth with the Mexican kids. That brings kids around, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's not, we're not there primarily because they needed us to do these things. What, what they really want when we come, what they're so excited about more than anything, is just getting to be with us when we were there. Uh, they were always so eager to be with other Christians uh, and then to connect with these churches, even churches from far away. And they just go out of their way to give the warmest welcome they could. And especially many of us recognize that in the food they fed us. It was always amazing how long they would spend making meals for us. Uh, so we would end up eating these great meals with them. We would worship with them and work with them um, and just be together and hang out and throughout all of this, they would find times to be telling us their stories. The pastors of each church would take time to talk about their testimony, what God has been doing in their church. Um, members of the church would share their stories. And then while they're sharing their stories, they would also um, challenge us, uh, uh, encourage us in various ways about what we're doing and what our lives look like. Um, 
there were times as we were there that like members would just grab you and they would start talking to you about their life. And I remember a few times that happened and I don't know any Spanish and they would just, they were okay. They were going to tell me about it one way or the other. And one of them, Pedro, me and Pedro got along really well because that's just how Pete's are. We just relate. Um, and, and he just took me and I grabbed our youth who was really good at Spanish next to me and he, he went and he went so fast and he wouldn't pause. And so even the youth was like, I, I have no idea anymore what's being said. And he just enjoyed telling me his story, though I couldn't understand. It was really lovely. Uh, those trips are always such a delight for us. Um, and they demonstrate so powerfully to us what it really means that we are one body with the church, even churches around the world. They showed us what it is that we are really connected through the gospel. We had very little in common in many other ways, but we had Christ, and that is what matters. So we could love each other, enjoy each other's company, celebrate together, even being unable to speak together all the time. We were united in Christ through the gospel. That is what was central. As we explore 2 Corinthians further today, uh, we will not see that kind of joy and celebration. We're going to see quite the opposite, really, But we will still see at the very center of Paul's whole argument here, um, really the center of his conduct and his relationship with the Corinthians in general, is the gospel. They have been united by Christ's great work, and that is what they must rely on to guide them forward together. As we begin, I think it's helpful uh, to take another brief moment of reminder about what is really going on between the Corinthian church and Paul. If you were here last week, Pastor Christian really dove pretty deep on that. If you missed it, find it online later and, and listen to it to get a bit more. But just this relationship is so central to the whole letter and really to today. I think it's nice. We'll make a quicker review of it. So the church in Corinth was planted by Paul, um, and they'd been having, as many churches do, various problems trying to understand what they're supposed to believe and how they're supposed to be living. Um, so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to very specifically address many of those issues. You want to know what those problems are? Read 1 Corinthians. But it seems that letter was not well received, so much so that Paul had to make an emergency trip down to the Corinthian church to try to deal with kind of the fallout and the problems that were going on there. And that was a really hard visit. Paul talks about it as a very painful visit. Uh, it seems many in the church were not receptive to him as he came. They didn't receive his message. And there was at least one leader who kind of actively was in conflict with Paul and opposed him, and others were kind of following that leader. So after this painful visit, Paul writes another letter to the Corinthian church, talks about it as a severe letter. Um, that letter was delivered by Titus. Um, and then as Titus comes back to Paul with word about what happened, thankfully, he could say that many people in the church had actually begun to repent and change, and they were trying to turn back towards Paul and towards his message. But still, at this point, everything is not yet right in Corinth. There were still people who were believing and practicing things that were contradicting the gospel, and there were others who were especially working to undermine Paul's authority. Now, especially of those, there was this group of leaders. They called themselves apostles, um, but they believed that apostles and Christians in general really should be known by their power. They should be known because of the victory they have in this life. It shouldn't be about suffering. Instead, everyone should know about their skill, their spiritual might, things like that. So Paul wrote to Corinth again. That is the letter of Second Corinthians we are in. Uh, he was eager in this letter to continue mending the relationship he had with the Corinthian church. He was also eager to begin correcting those teachings and actions of those new kind of so-called apostles. Um, and at the core of all of Paul's concern, this is the case throughout Second Corinthians, is the gospel. He saw the church was po- potentially rejecting him, which hurt, but much more serious was that 
along with rejecting him, they were going to reject the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. And that is deadly serious. So this is a situation that we are stepping into as we continue on in chapter 1. Last week, we had the introduction to this whole letter that started opening up some of these themes. This week, Paul steps directly into um, addressing these um, concerns, conflicts, problems going on between him and the Corinthian church. And as we start to look at this passage more, let's just acknowledge it's a bit confusing. Uh, Even if you're like me and you've read it like 20, 30 times this week, it's not the easiest argument to follow in every way. It's very much Paul being Paul, and you just do the best we can. I do find it helps to, to start kind of in the middle of this passage, what the really core of his argument is. We find that in verses 19 to 22. Here, we really just see Paul proclaiming again the gospel. He says it is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that they had proclaimed in Corinth and still do. And it's in Jesus that all God's promises are yes. And then he reminds them that in Christ they have been established, anointed, sealed, and given the Holy Spirit. We will come back and unpack that more, but just realize he is just proclaiming the gospel again at this point. It's at the very center of his discussion here because the gospel is at the center of everything. It underlies everything he is saying and doing. It explains Paul's conduct among the Corinthian church. It guides all of his decisions that he makes on their behalf. And even the gospel is what created the really important relationship between Paul and the Corinthian believers. The gospel is the reason for this deep, necessary connection that they share. Um, So as we go forward, just keep the gospel in mind and everything. Now we can turn back to the beginning in verse 12. Here, Paul, again, is stepping into that pain and problems that he's finding in between him and the Corinthian church. And he starts by addressing, by clarifying right away, all of his actions and teachings among them. He says, For our boast is this, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Right away, you might be caught by the fact that he talks about boasting here. Um, we'll actually see him come back to that a lot in the letter. Uh, it's important to know that when he talks about boasting, it's not what we would often think about someone who is boasting. We tend to think about boasting, we think of arrogance, right? Or we think of a pride that says, look at me, I'm amazing. That's not Paul's point here. Paul is talking about confidence, especially a confidence before God. He is saying this is something we can hold up even before the Lord and say, this is good. Uh, It really seems that the new apostles in Corinth um, were really good at boasting. They especially tended to boast about strength and power. So Paul is going to counter those boasts by boasting about true things, truly boasting about truly good things. So here Paul begins to boast not of power and strength, but of simplicity, of his godly sincerity. He says he has lived in the world, and especially that he has lived for the Corinthian believers, not according to worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom that would value strength and power, but by God's grace. And it is by God's grace that Paul has been singularly focused on the gospel and the good of the church. He's had pure motives, not been seeking his own gain, but been thinking of how can the gospel be proclaimed and the church be strengthened. Even more, when we think about simplicity and sincerity and the argument continuing on here, um, Paul is getting a lot about transparency. All of this is implicating how transparent Paul has been. Paul is saying to everyone, you have seen me. You know everything about me, about how I work and what I've taught. I have hidden nothing from you. That's what continues on uh, his line line of thought in verse 13. He says there, We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. It seems like Paul here is just carefully explaining to the Corinthian church, I have never meant anything 
other than what I have obviously written or taught to you. There's no hidden motives in this. There's no hidden messages in any of these things. My life, my teaching is focused on the gospel for your behalf, for your benefit. Again, at least some in the Corinthian church aren't sure if they trust Paul in these ways. So he's trying to counter that by reminding them that they have seen and known all that he does, that he's kept nothing from them, that he's never misled them. And he really emphasizes this finally um, in verse 14 there by saying, on the day of the Lord, you will, you, he tells them, you will understand this clearly. He says, on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He just means when Jesus comes to return, when he is coming as judge and king, we will then be without sin. We will see all things truly. And at that point, believers, you will see fully how much I have loved you and how much I have served you. You won't doubt me anymore. And then he says, and even at that time, I will still be so proud of you. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus will return and set all things right. And at that time, Paul and the Corinthian church will be fully reunited and restored. I think this is a good place to just pause for a moment in this passage. I personally find how Paul talks about his life for the sake of the gospel really compelling here. Um, When we think of how we are called to live because of the gospel, when we think of how we're called to live because of what Jesus has done for us, how often do we often start with like the lists of do's and don'ts in scripture? Or how much do we think, I just need to avoid sin now. All Jesus is asking is that I stay away from sin. Now, those are good things. Please do run from sin and pursue holiness. The lists we find in Scripture around behaviors are really helpful to know what is good and what is not good for us. But I love in this passage that Paul's example of the gospel in his life is just shown in his simplicity, in his godly sincerity. Again, the simplicity here, it's meant as a single-mindedness. He is singularly focused on proclaiming and living out the gospel. He has no other motives going on in this. And it goes hand in hand with that godly sincerity. He lives us out in purity. He means what he says and does. Ultimately, Paul is very transparent about his life. Everyone knows what he does. They hear about why he does it. He keeps nothing hidden. And this is true for how he relates to those who are in the church and know and love Jesus already. And it's true for how he relates to those outside the church who don't yet know and love the Lord. I find this really challenging. I find a lot of calls for us as a church in this. First, I think, of course, this is a call to truly take the gospel to heart and to hold fast to it, to focus upon Christ above and before all else. But then it is a call to live with openness and honesty so that everyone will see the love of God and Jesus Christ through us. It's a call especially to avoid secrecy and hiding. In everything we do, we do it in the light. We don't have a private life that is totally different from our public life. And then we certainly expect and require this type of openness from our leaders as well. And we can acknowledge this is not always an easy thing for so many of us. Many things, we have, we have hidden things that are so hard. They're so, we're so afraid to be able to share. Maybe we fear rejection. What happens if people know this? Um, maybe we know so much pain. We don't want to cause more. Or we just aren't sure what might happen if we share. I think today for us, just be thinking, how can I start small and moving away from hiddenness and secrecy? Start by sharing with the Lord. 
Yes, God already knows, but you have to start there. You have to start talking with him. But then think about, can you talk with anyone on staff here? Maybe make, make um, time for personal confession with some of our clergy or find a close friend, a spouse, anyone. How can you begin to um, kind of remove the darkness on these things, bring things into the light? The grace that we know in Christ will bring such great healing to our darkest places, but they can't stay secret. Paul continues on from here um, to what might seem like a pretty small thing to us. Paul changed his plans. He had wanted to visit the Corinthian church twice, once on his way to Macedonia and then once back. But instead, the way it's working out now is he's going to go to Macedonia first without stopping in Corinth. I think for us, that feels pretty understandable, right? Plans change. It's not a big deal. But Paul is obviously not seeing this as just a minor thing. Look at verse 17. Paul asks very strongly, he asks, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? To be clear, that yes, yes, no, no, it's just a way of being really emphatic. So Paul's saying, do I make my plan? He's not saying, do I make my plan saying, well, maybe yes, maybe no? He's asking, do I make my plan saying yes, definitely, while saying no, definitely not at the same time? The answer to these questions is, no, Paul. Paul's not like that. Uh, But it's just pretty sudden, pretty powerful language and big questions around this change of plans. Why does this matter so much? What is going on with this? Well, this change of plans presents a problem, or a potential problem anyway. Paul knows that. So either he's going to get ahead of whatever problem might be coming his way, or perhaps he's already started to hear from Corinth and knows that there are some in the church who aren't happy about this. Remember, things between Paul and the Corinthian church are still kind of shaky. They're still being restored to each other. Maybe even just a simple change of plans is going to be too much for people. They're going to feel a little bit forgotten. Even more, though, I think Paul is especially worried that some in the church are going to take this change of plans as proof that ultimately Paul is not sincere. This is evidence that Paul doesn't really mean what he says, that he's careless or self-interested or manipulative, and then those people are going to turn from not just him, but the gospel that he preached. Some really do seem ready to say, you know, Paul, you never mean what you say. This is the last straw. Why should we believe you? Why should we believe the gospel as you proclaimed it? Maybe those other apostles are right. So Paul responds to all of this by proclaiming again the gospel. That's the next piece of this whole passage. He begins, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In this brief moment, what is on Paul's mind here is a big deal around our word to you. What does he mean, our word to you? Um, It's not simply just the change of plans, but it's really all that he has taught and that he has said. Paul is beginning to get to the bigger issue at play. The issue is, is Paul trustworthy? Is what he says reliable? So he's using this change of plans as an entry point to get to the central issue. So really, as Paul says, our word to you has not been yes and no. On his mind is the gospel that he proclaimed, and everything else he's ever said and done, even up to simple changes of plans. All of it is not yes and no. So Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, my word is faithful too. Now, I think if you're Paul's detractors at this point, you might say, sure, God is faithful, but why does that mean you're faithful? Well, Paul's still going. He's certain it will make sense if you just hold on with him. And he begins to proclaim. He says, Jesus Christ Uh, is the Son of God, and in him we find God's yes. 
That's such a big, wonderful word. For Paul, he's thinking how Jesus is God's yes to fallen sinners, humans. Jesus is God's yes to all of creation. Jesus is just God's yes of salvation and redemption and all of that. But Paul continues, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Certainly on his mind are all of God's promises that we find, his covenants that we find throughout the Old Testament. Um, We can think of the promises and covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made with Moses and Israel, promises to David and beyond. All of these promises led to Christ, the Son of God coming to earth as a human to live, die, rise from the dead, destroy death, and bring God's people back to himself. Very simply, God's yes in Jesus is the gospel. And Paul is relying on the yes of the gospel now to say to the Corinthian church, I love and serve Jesus and the gospel. So if he is always yes for us, how can I be anything but yes for you too? Paul's whole life has been offered to Christ. He's lived in submission to Christ. He's lived to demonstrate Christ to the world. So his word can't be yes and no. Paul can't find a way to be. He couldn't be dishonest or self-interested with the Corinthian church because that's against everything. Everything he's done and said, proclaimed, all that he believes If he was to be a yes and a no person, that is against Christ. But still, Paul continues on. He has even more to say about what God has done for us. And he talks about how this faithful God, the God whose yes to us is in Jesus, well, this God has also established us in Christ. He made us stand firm in him. And he has anointed us. This is actually a fun play on words. So Christ means anointed one. So what's kind of being said here when saying we've been anointed is sort of saying we've been Christed, as one commentator put it. It's just a kind of fun way to try to say we have been brought together in Christ. We've been made his people, his community. But also God has sealed us. Sealed is wonderful image of ownership and protection. It's God saying over us, you are mine. And then finally, God has given us the Holy Spirit to be in and with us. And that's, for Paul, the final guarantee of what is to come, which is life forever with God. All of this is such, so beautiful, and it's this wonderful but short summary of, of, of the outworking of the gospel. But in the midst of this, what's especially important for Paul comes in verse 21, as he kind of starts this little summary. He says there, God establishes us with you in Christ. God establishes us with you in Christ. So Paul's point in this is to remind the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached, but it's especially to remind them that this gospel is about all of them, that they have been established together. The gospel that Paul and the Corinthian believers have held on to, that has united them together in Christ. And then actually all these things, the anointing, the sealing, the giving of the Holy Spirit, these are all things that they have received together. So the Corinthians should know that Paul is speaking the truth. They know the work of God because of how Paul lived and preached among them. They have been joined, they have actually joined Paul in the body of Christ, and they've experienced the many blessings of that together with him. None of that was a lie. None of that was manipulation. Their whole new lives have depended on how God worked through Paul in their midst. So surely they can see Paul isn't here to say yes and no. His life has always been yes for them. It's because Paul's life is an outworking of the gospel, which is God's yes for all of us. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, Paul begins to explain why he didn't visit Corinth at the time he first thought he would. 
And simply, it was to spare the Corinthians more grief. Paul knew if he came again, he would have to come to discipline and to judge. He didn't want to do that yet. He doesn't lord his authority over them, so he's comfortable waiting for that time of discipline and judgment. He's comfortable giving more time for repentance and change before he has to come like that. So instead, all of this has been about reminding the church um, that he actually wants to work with them for their joy. Once again, Paul is reminding them he really does love them. He wants joy for them. So this whole section is then just Paul trying to explain and defend himself all for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't want the Corinthians to turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so he explains the gospel again while trying to demonstrate that the gospel not only brought them together in community, but it forms the foundation of his whole life and actions for them. They can trust him as they do trust the gospel and the Lord that he serves. So one more thing for us before I end. Even though throughout this letter, Paul is really still working through great distress and pains in the church, I think this passage gives us really great reminders of just how wonderful a gift we have in the body of Christ. Paul says it so clearly. We are established together in Christ. It is together that we know his benefits. In other words, we need each other. We are blessed to be together. We work together for our joy. How is that for the work of the church? Joy. And then don't forget that wonderful image he gives of us rejoicing over each other in the day of the Lord. Now, of course, all of this isn't just something that we are thankful for. We are thankful for it, but it's not just something we hold just to thanks. It's not just something we put into the future and just imagine about that. We can rejoice over each other now. The encouragement and support that we give each other in the church is necessary and awesome. With that as well, we certainly aren't waiting until the end of all things to be people of joy. Remember, our life together can be, even should be, characterized by the joy that we give each other. And then even more, as we have been established in Christ, made to stand firm in Christ together with each other, we live out our lives in Christ together. We pursue the gospel together. And especially now, as we're coming off of this crazy year and we're trying to figure out our lives again, now is the time to prioritize the church, Christ's body. Now is the time to put in place, again, those habits and connections that we need if we're to truly live into this wonderful gift that we have. That's the gift of each other and Christ in each of us. Thinking about those um, beautiful connections that we found in the churches in Merida, those aren't meant to just be something unique, something that happens every few years when you travel a few thousand miles. That is something we can know weekly, we can know daily, as we live more and more into this wonderful gospel community that Jesus died to form. Let us pray. Christ, we are so thankful for you, for the good news of the gospel, and that you have brought us together, that you've blessed us together, um, that you've given us this common life and family. And I ask that you bless us in this. Help us to be people who pursue um, openness and sincerity and joy and love. And help us to proclaim you well in this world and bring many in um, that our family can grow, uh, that we can love more and give joy to more. Um, Be with us and help us in all these things, Lord. Amen.